This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Once again, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, welcome you here and for those who are, are tuning in from elsewhere. My name is Father Kevin and uh, one of the pastors here. It's so good to finally be able to say that. We're really delighted to be here. After nine or so months of interviews and discernment and preparation, Susan and our kids and I are just so glad. So thank you for welcoming us and I'm really glad to be here this morning. Now, as you can imagine, or perhaps as, as you've experienced over the past uh, 12 to 15 months, looking for a new job in the middle of a pandemic can be an interesting experience. You have the own personal stressors of your life, and then there's organizational instability, the place where you're applying, the job where you currently have, and then Zoom interviews, which are a very unique beast. I don't recommend those to anybody, but grateful that we could do those. And then in-person interviews in the winter outside, we did that. It was quite an adventure, but we made it through all right. And, um, you know, during my interview process, one of the themes that kept emerging uh, as I would speak with uh, Father Jonathan and the rest of the search committee was this. Despite all of the challenges, and there were very real challenges and difficulties, despite all of these things, they had a sense that God was up to something new. It's been a difficult season of, of pruning and of cutting back, but the sense was all of this was to prepare this church and God's people for new life, for spring. And I do have a sense that the Holy Spirit is preparing our church for something. We're on the cusp of something fresh and green, and this is what we're praying for. In fact, uh, the staff and the vestry met just yesterday to talk about some of these things and to pray into some of these things. And so with this in mind, we're going to consider the story of Pentecost this morning, the pouring out of God's Spirit on God's people, effectively launching the mission of the church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And there's perhaps no better passage for us uh, as we expand our imaginations for what God is doing currently in our midst and what God wants to do in our midst. And so as we look at Acts 2, 1 through 21 this morning, we're going to look at two things. First, the meaning of Pentecost. What does it mean? Why is it significant? Why does it matter? And secondly, we're going to discern a pattern that God provides for the accomplishment of his purposes. Let's pray. Our Father, in your word, your Son tells us that when he is ascended, he will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to fill us, to unite us to yourself, and to guide us into all truth. And that is our prayer. Encourage us, convict us, teach us. Transform us by your Spirit, we pray, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, as we begin to wrap our arms around this passage to get a feel for it, I just want us to look at the structure. It's very uh, helpful for us. It's a very simple structure if you see it in your bulletin. There are three sections. Verses 1 through 4 is the descent of the, the Spirit, sort of the event of Pentecost. 5 through 13 is the reaction of the crowds. And then 14 to 21 is uh, Peter's explanation, and that really continues through verse 41, but we won't look that far this morning. So we'll look at each of these sections briefly. So the first section, verses 1 through 4, is how the Holy Spirit drops on God's people. 
we see a small group of Jesus' followers, and they're sitting in a house somewhere in the middle of Jerusalem, and they're waiting there because that's exactly what Jesus told them to do back in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus says, wait here, wait until the Spirit comes. I'm going to send him, and you just need to sit and wait. And so they're doing just that, in obedience to Jesus, waiting in a room, and then all of a sudden, as if out of nowhere, something like a tornado fills the house. And then flames of fire begin to appear on people's heads. Now, it's helpful to know, I think, because this is a wild scene, that wind and fire, they're not completely random things. These actually are significant images from the Old Testament. They symbolize God's presence, speaking to his people and guiding them. So think about the burning bush with Moses or the pillar of fire that's leading his people through the Exodus. Now, knowing that doesn't make the scene any less crazy. We should probably just acknowledge that. There's loud noises, there's fire on people's heads, and then everyone starts shouting in languages that they didn't know before. At the top of their lungs, they're proclaiming the amazing things that God has done throughout human history. This leads us to verse 5 in the second section, the reaction of this scene. We see that the Holy Spirit is really just getting started. The people start turning up the volume and they start getting rowdy and they go outside into the streets and they're making an absolute scene. And so they draw a crowd. People do what people do. In verse 6, we see a multitude of people gathered together to see what was going on, to hear what was going on. And we see that this collection, this multitude is... uh, comprised of 12 different types of people from different regions. And they're shocked to hear this group of uneducated Galileans who maybe they knew or had met in the past few days. These people who didn't know these languages before are speaking their native tongues. They're hearing these amazing things in their mother language. It's a bit of a zoo. It's noisy. It's confusing. The people are described as bewildered. It's a good word. Amazed and perplexed. They've never seen anything like this. There's a lot of surprising things that happen in our passage, but the question that they ask is not a surprising thing at all. It's the most obvious thing to ask. What does this mean? Verse 12. What in the world does this mean? It's a very good question to ask. It's the question we're asking this morning. What does all this mean? And then this brings us to our third section in verse 14. Peter answers that very obvious question. He explains that the coming of the Holy Spirit is the direct result of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Now, this miraculous event is a beautiful tapestry of several threads of the Old Testament all woven together. And I think one of the best ways to understand what's happening is to just follow those threads. And we're going to look at the two most obvious threads. There's many more that we could look at, but we'll look at just two this morning. The first is the word Pentecost, and the second is the big quote from the prophet Joel that Peter quotes at the beginning of of his first sermon. So first we're going to look at Pentecost. Well, Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50th, and it refers to the 50th day after something. So if you were a first century Jew, uh, like that group of people that the Spirit depends upon, if you were a first century Jew the day of Pentecost would have been significant for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that it would have reminded you of the annual agricultural festival called the Festival of Pentecost. And this always happened the 50th day after Passover. And what would happen here is that farmers would bring the first bits of their wheat crop, 
and they would offer these to God in the temple in worship, in thanksgiving, and in prayer that God would allow them to bring in the rest of the harvest, to to gather the rest of it in. So it was a very significant day for sustaining uh, people by feeding them. And the second reason Pentecost would have been significant is that it would have reminded a first century Jew of the Exodus and the very first Passover when God delivered the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. Fifty days after that first Passover, the Lord led Moses and his crew through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, and on the 50th day, God gave Moses the law. And with the law, a new way of life, a new way of being a people. And so Pentecost, the first Pentecost, when they celebrated every year, was not only an agricultural festival, but it was this anniversary of the law, which was so important. An anniversary of God making this people a people. Like these Pentecosts, our Pentecost in the Christian church comes 50 days after Easter. That's what it means, 50 days after Easter. So these are some interesting things from the Old Testament, but why does it matter? Why in the world do these things matter? Well, I think they actually help us unlock the meaning of Pentecost. God chose this day, this day of Pentecost, for a reason. It's not a coincidence. Pouring out the Spirit on this day means that this small group, this insignificant group of people, is but the first fruits of what God is going to do. The gospel is going to go from Jerusalem with this small group of people across the world, across the globe. Pouring out the Spirit on this day means that God is giving his people a new way of life, a new way of being human in the world. No longer are the people of God bound by the old covenant, by the law of Moses. They are reformed by life in the Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus, the Messiah. So it's very significant. Knowing this helps us to see that. The second clue to discovering the meaning of Pentecost is this big quote, verses 17 through 21. It's Peter quoting the prophet Joel. To explain what's going on, the people say, what's happening? Jesus, or Peter stands up, he's the leader, and he begins to preach. And he says, what's happening is not uh, some drunken party, It's far too early in the morning for people to be drinking. What's happening is the prophecy of Joel. Remember, these were Jews. They would have known this prophecy. They would have been looking forward to this prophecy being fulfilled. The prophecy of the prophet Joel is beginning to come to pass. Now, it's interesting to me that of all the passages that Peter could have chosen, he could have selected any number of passages from the prophets or elsewhere to explain what's going on. He could have picked... Something like Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36, these other great prophecies about the Spirit. But he picks the prophet Joel to explain what's happening. I wonder why he does that. Well, I think at least one answer is that Peter wants to emphasize something in particular. He wants us to see and to understand that no longer is it just one or two people that is filled with the Spirit or anointed, a king or a prophet. The Spirit is for the masses. God is doing something new. We might say that the Spirit is democratized. It's for all people. The prophet Joel, uh, the mouthpiece of the Lord, says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters, young and old, slave and free, all are filled and empowered in this new day. God's Spirit does not discriminate. His life, his presence, and his power is for all genders, all classes, all ages, all cultures. And as we'll see as we continue through the book of Acts, all ethnicities or races. 
The Spirit is poured out on all who call upon the name of the Lord. And I want to draw our attention to just one thing in particular about this amazing prophecy that is coming to pass. And that's the language of the Spirit being poured out. This conjures the image of an unprecedented and transformative flood. And it's a favorite word among the prophets as they're talking about what is going to happen, what it's going to look like when the Spirit of God is poured out on the people and on the earth. Listen to the dramatic picture of the world before and after this spirit flood from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 32, verses 14 to 17. Isaiah begins describing the land before the spirit. In verse 14, he says, The palace is forsaken. The populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. The land is a wasteland. It's a Chernobyl. It's a disaster. That is, until he picks up in verse 15, until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. You see, when the Spirit is poured out, the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Justice and peace are unleashed in the land through God's Spirit-filled people. Quoting Joel Peters, offering us this powerful image of the Spirit being poured out like rains that transform the landscape, that transform the people. This makes me think of a nature documentary that I've watched recently with our kids, and I want you to know that Susan and I are great parents. That Our kids only watch nature documentaries, no, like other fun shows. And we were doing one of these very educational experiences as a family, and uh, there was this beautiful scene of... Uh, a time lapse of rain coming down on the desert. It's one of those things where the camera's rolling for like a couple days and you see it all happening uh, in hyperspeed in a few seconds, 30 seconds maybe. And it's this scene of the rains pouring down on the desert. And it happens very quickly. The rains pour down and the parched sands, they just explode into a fertile oasis. And this oasis provides food and water for those who hunger. And thirst, all the animals come to this place where the water has poured out. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit does when the Holy Spirit is poured upon us, his people. The Spirit transforms barren hearts of stone into beating hearts of flesh. With this, we begin to see what Pentecost means. We're just beginning to wrap our minds around it even 2,000 years later. It's a new era for God's people and for the world through God's people. God is on the move in a new way. But I think all of this raises a really important question, something that we need to ask ourselves today. How is all of this going to happen? How does this come to pass? How is this movement of the Spirit sustained? Well, as wonderful and as powerful and as miraculous as uh, the first day of Pentecost was, and it was an amazing thing, the event of Pentecost alone cannot sustain this Holy Spirit movement. The event of Pentecost alone, 2,000 years ago, cannot sustain the movement of the Spirit. This gift of the Spirit needs to be carefully stewarded by God's people. And if you think about it, this is true of, of any great movement or endeavor or gift. Raw talent and passion alone does not qualify somebody for the Olympics. An amazing wedding doesn't sustain a marriage for 25 years or two weeks, let alone two days. So it is with our walk with the Lord. 
All of these things, every great endeavor, every great mission, requires a long obedience in the same direction, to quote a great line from Nietzsche. And God has given us a pattern, or maybe it's better to think of it as a rhythm for this long obedience. It's a really simple pattern. It's elegant. It's infinitely adaptable. It looks different through the centuries and in different cultures, but the pattern is always the same. And the pattern is simply this, gather, renew, send. That's the rhythm, gather, renew, send. This is how the spirit-filled movement begun at Pentecost is sustained. And so with this in mind, I want to do a kind of second pass through our passage, um, looking at uh, how we see each of these dynamics of this pattern. So first, gather. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it's easy to skip past. We read, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. Now, if you're looking at this, it's pretty easy to, you know, you know what's coming if you know this passage to fast forward to the the Spirit, but um, this is not a throwaway detail. This is how God chooses to work and to show up among his people. He's especially present, as we talked about with the children this morning, in the context of community, when we're physically gathered together. And being physically gathered together really does matter. That's why virtual worship at the end of the day is pretty disappointing. Now, don't get me wrong, it was an amazing gift that sustained uh, God's people through a very challenging time in the heights of the pandemic, but worshiping on my couch at home was pretty nice for a little while, but ultimately it doesn't cut it. And this is why people stop tuning in. This is why I think people are hungry to come back, um, because we're not really together when we're, when we're live streaming. It's, it's really helpful and it's really good, but we're not really together. Our physical bodies matter. Being together as embodied creatures, matters. And that's why we have three services. It's not easy to pull that off. We have three services to create as much space as we possibly can for the physical embodied worship of God's people so that God might meet us and transform us and send us out on mission. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's look at the second uh, dynamic of our pattern, being renewed. God gathers his people to renew his people. In our passage, we see that God renews his people in a very unique way. He pours out his spirit for the very first time. If you keep reading to the end of Peter's sermon, we'll see how this typically happens week in and week out. We see this perhaps most clearly in the famous passage, this famous picture of the early church, Acts 2, 41 to 47. We read that these people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. It's this image of being together in community, sitting under the preaching of God's word, celebrating the Lord's Supper together, and praying together. This is how God's people are renewed. In worship, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, that he loves us, that he died for us, that he lives for us, that he has a purpose for our lives. And this is the point of all of the parts and pieces of our worship and of our liturgy together on a Sunday morning. Our liturgy is modeled after this pattern, both gather, renew, send, and this uh, image that we see in Acts 2, 41 to 47. This is how God feeds and forms his people. And this, let me just say, is why we gather for worship every single week. This is why God's people sometimes gather for worship every single day. I don't know about you, but following for me, following Jesus is very hard, and I need renewal every single week, every single day. And I need God's people to encourage me and to sustain me on this journey together. And that brings us third and finally to being sent. All of this culminates 
in God sending us back into the world from the places that he's drawn us. God gathers his people to renew his people to send them back out on mission. We see this in Acts 2. God sends his spirit-filled people out into the streets and they start preaching and proclaiming the amazing things that God has done. We see this in our dismissal at the conclusion of our worship service. It's not just the end of worship. Our dismissal is a commission. We're commissioned to be God's hands and feet, his missionaries into the world. We'll hear this in just a moment. Let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. We, just like that first group of of people that the Spirit fell upon, are sent out into the world on mission. We're sent back to our families, to our neighborhoods, to our classrooms, to our offices, maybe still to our Zoom rooms, in the power of the Spirit. And as we heard in our gospel reading this morning, we will continue the work of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. There's something really amazing and surprising in what Jesus says in his promise here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So we're continuing to do the things that Jesus did, but he says something especially surprising. Greater works than these will we do. Because Jesus is going to the Father. Because Jesus goes to the Father, we have the Spirit. The Spirit is in each of us. And Jesus says we'll do more amazing things that he even did. Which is a remarkable thing to think about. Gather, renew, send. That's the pattern. That's the rhythm. That is the steady drumbeat that has been the cadence for the journey of God's people. Day by day, week by week, year by year, generation by generation throughout the centuries. Now, I want to bring all this together for us this morning, and I want to think about uh, some of the implications for us in this season as we just barely begin to emerge from this pandemic hibernation. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that the pandemic isn't over. It's raging across the world, and in our own country, we are not out of the weeds. We are not out of this long winter, but there are little signs of spring popping up out of the ground and more and more every day. And we need to think about what that means for us in this next season of our life together. Well, I read a great article in The Atlantic last week. The title of it is this, A Once in a Lifetime Chance to Start Over. It's a great article by a man named Arthur Brooks. And in this article, he helps us to think about this season and what we should do, what we should begin thinking about and praying into in this next phase of our life together. Now, I don't have to tell you, and he he rehearses these things in his article, over the last 15 months, our lives have been torn down to the studs. That's the metaphor he uses. Our house has been demolished. The, the, The house of our life and our life together has been demolished, torn down to the studs. Our priorities, our commitments, our rhythms, all of these things have been severely disrupted in every area of our life, our work our school, our friendships, our family, our church life together. None of this is new news for any of us. And much of this demolition, much of this tearing down has been really hard. It's been incredibly difficult for so many of us. And so I want to acknowledge that we can't skip past the difficult things. Much of it has been very hard. But I think if we reflect on things a bit, some of the demolition has actually been a gift It's been God's grace to us in some ways. I think many of us have realized that our way of being in the old world was actually pretty misaligned, was unhealthy. We were too busy, we were too hectic, we were spread too thin, we were focusing on the wrong things. 
And now, I think, in this season, we are presented with a remarkable opportunity. We have access to a giant reset button. In the coming months, we get to rebuild. We get to ask ourselves this great question that Arthur Brooks asks us. What do I want the new normal to look like? What do I want the new normal to look like? I don't think, I probably hope that we never have this opportunity again, both individually and as a group of people, to ask this question and to think about uh, these things. The subtitle of Brooks's article is How to Have a Happier Post-Pandemic Life. On Pentecost, I want us to think about how to have a more spirit-filled post-Pentecost life. God is on the move in a new way. How can we participate with what the Spirit of God is doing in our communities, in our church? And so I ask you, will you press that reset button? It's a giant, big, red reset button. It's the color of Pentecost. It's the one reset button, the big red button that you're not supposed to press. God wants you to press that button. Will you press it? Will you commit yourself in new ways to the rhythms of the life in the Spirit and by God's grace, bear the fruit of the Spirit in our barren world? What do you want the new normal to look like? Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this day, this day of Pentecost, and the reminder that you poured out your Spirit in an unprecedented way, and you continue to pour out your Spirit upon us and fill us. I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit this day, that you would produce in us the fruit of the Spirit, and you would bring to life all the dead places in our hearts and in our homes, in our church and in our city, for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.